Hello, Alex from Scrimba here. You are listening to a recording of one of our weekly fireside chats here at Scrimba. In a nutshell, we sit around an imaginary campfire and have real conversations about learning to code and how to land your first junior developer job. We bring out the imaginary kindling every Tuesday, and while we hope you enjoy this recording, we would much prefer to see you there live, because when you attend live, you get to participate in the chat and ask us questions. To learn more about the Fireside chats, such as how to join, what exciting topics are upcoming, and what specific time the event happens in your time zone, head to scrimba.com forward slash fireside. On behalf of myself, my wonderful co-host Leanne from Scrimba, and everybody else on the Scrimba team, and our occasional guests here in the Fireside chats, please enjoy this episode, and remember to subscribe so that you see future episodes as well as support the show. Let's get into it. So today the topic is bad programming practices, and of course if we're going to tell you what not to do, it stands to reason we should also tell you what you should do instead. And we'll do this the best we can, considering this is a drop-in audio platform. Sometimes it can be tricky to explain coding concepts and things like that without being able to demonstrate something, but we'll try our best to keep it practical and, and interesting. If you haven't been in a fireside chat before, there's two things you need to know. The first is that we're all staring and looking at the fireside chat text channel, which you can find just above this one, um, to see what your questions are. Like we want everything we say to be relevant to you guys. So if you have questions or thoughts, um, just post them. You'll be surprised at how often we pick up on them and discuss. Likewise, if you care to come up on the stage, um, you can use the raise hand button via the Discord interface. So yeah, I'm your host, Alex. I'm joined by Michael and Bob, as well as Froda. Hey guys. Hello. Yeah, Froda, welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks. We've all been busy creating a list of bad practices to discuss. It's, it's got to be quite long, actually, so we'll cover what we can. Froda, I see that you mentioned a bad practice, and seeing as how you're freshly here, maybe you can kick us off and talk a little bit about it. Sure. It goes to, I guess, like working efficiently. And uh, I've done this many times. In, in the beginning in a project, you can easily, you know, report some issues. Other people report some issues and you just work through them. But picking which task to work on from looking at GitHub issues or any other like issue tracker is uh, basically a terrible way to prioritize what to work on. And I've done it many a time. Uh, with Scrimba, for example, we now have about, what, 200 community reported issues plus probably the same amount of internally reported issues. So you will just go crazy and not be able to decide what to work on if that is your guiding uh, way to find a task. What we are doing now in Scrimba is to have a weekly meeting where we talk about priorities and like what features should we work on. And we're trying to be strict on how many things we work on because most times like bigger features especially take longer than you expect almost always. Multiply it by pi 3.14 to get the actual time it takes to get something done. So. So that is something we're trying to uh, to get better at by by both prioritizing, knowing things take time, and yeah, having a clear. When you sit down to work, you should have a clear list. I often write it down in paper, actually, in front of me. One to three issues I'm going to work on for the day. Am I understanding you right when I say that the bad practice would be to open your laptop, not have a clue what you're going to work on that day, and just pick pretty much at random based on a list of tasks and gets a issues or elsewhere. Whereas the, the correct thing or the better thing to do would be to plan in advance. So when you sit down at your computer, you know what prioritized tasks are there to do. And if you're to estimate how long each will take, you should probably double, if not 
triple it to arrive at an accurate estimate so you can plan your days and weeks more, more effectively. Well summarized. Oh, thank you. Just, yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think in the chat? Is that how do you typically approach your projects? Like, are you, do you kind of do what you feel like on the day, um, be it specific features or areas of the code that you work on? And um, when it comes to studying, I think, you know, when you're learning to code, it involves writing some code. So there's a similarity there. I'm wondering if you in the chat sometimes plan ahead and know what you're going to do, or if you just kind of pick it up based on, on the way you're feeling. But while you, while you belabor that, I'd love to hear from you, Michael. So I see another bad practice here in the list, but I'd love to hear from you about. Uh, yeah, normally all the places I've ever worked with, they had pretty well-defined backlog. You just pick the next ticket from there. But well, in my previous place, I had some role in actually forming that backlog. So usually the bigger the company, the more different ways they come up of trying to organize it. And they also equally try to organize their backlog, making sure that all the different departments know and have input into your teams in production and stuff. So yeah, there is a surprisingly, it's really involved process to organize one single ticket for a developer to work on. <laughs> it's like, there's a lot of work going from a lot of people to make sure that one person can work on a little piece of code. There's a great post. Yeah. I don't know if you recognize it. Oh, I've, I just Googled it quickly, but I can't find it. But it's something like, the title is something like, how many Microsoft developers do it take to change a light bulb? And the whole premise of the post is that like, people often come to a developer as a company, and in fact, Frodo, I'm sure you see this in the screen of Discord as well, and someone's like, hey, can you, you know, it's a small issue, can you fix it? But, but to be fair, Scrimba is a lot more agile and doesn't suffer from the same things necessarily. Um, but within larger companies, certainly the amount of effort that goes into not only planning the feature, but releasing it with like quality assurance and documentation and all these things um, tends to be quite vast. But, but your point is that if you get too lost in the big picture, you'll never actually make any progress. Yeah, uh, that's kind of like, yeah, exactly. One of, the, one of the bad practices that I've, I wanted to share, sometimes people just jump into the code. That's kind of riffing off what Frodo already said. People jump into the code without really thinking about the business needs, what actually needs to be done, or whether the code that you're actually writing even needs to be written. I remember very early on in my career, someone said, the best code is no code. So if no code exists, then you don't have to maintain it. You don't have to fix bugs for it. Any line of code you write is a liability because it needs to be maintained. It needs to be looked after. Bugs needs to be fixed for it. So how can you do something with writing as little as possible? And obviously, yeah, if you jump into something without thinking things through, it leads to a lot of code that you won't need. And then someone will have to maintain it. I can attest to that. Um, a lot of times somebody will approach me with an idea, like family or friends, and uh, they'll say, I, I have this idea and I, wanna, I want to see if you'd be interested in coding it up. And I'm like, this is something you could do with Google Sheets. Like, I, I, wouldn't, I don't want to spend hours and hours and hours planning and building something that you could maybe not as perfectly, but just handle with existing tools that you're not going to have to maintain. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, kind of the other thing when you, Alex, approached those kind of uh, the other side of that coin is uh, thinking too much about the bigger picture all the time and not writing any code. And I think I struggle with that one. So it's basically this tip: don't think about bigger picture too long. Just actually get around writing some code. That's basically me telling myself off. I, I definitely sense there is a balance to to be achieved here. And I've actually invited Robert Peacock up onto the stage who joined us last week and shared some awesome insight. Well, welcome back, Robert. It's great to have you. Hi, everybody. Thanks. 
I, I hoped you would join us. And so I, I asked you to think about this topic a little bit. And because what you shared is so related to what Michael was just talking about, almost um, two sides of the coin, because you mentioned that not plan, and I don't think this was your point at all, Michael. I just think it's kind of relevant. Um, Robert, you mentioned that not planning your work can, can be a, a bad practice, essentially. And you also said that some of the most interesting work you've been involved in has been 90% planning and 10% coding. Can you, can you talk a bit about that practice and your experience? Because we'd love to hear it. Sure. Uh, I'm going to warn you that my cough from last time has gotten worse somehow. So I'm going to try and speak as little as I can. Um, but yeah, in my experience, um, if you work with other people on your team, whether you know other developers in your immediate team or other product owners in sort of the wider organization that you're in, um, you can really work to nail down exactly what it is that needs to be built. And if you don't, it becomes very easy to wander sort of down the garden path. Um, we, we often call it going down a rat hole. Um, you can very easily build either the wrong thing or something that somebody else has already built, either in your organization or you know, maybe externally, <clears throat> excuse me, as a open source plugin or or what have you. Kind of echoing the point that I just heard. Sorry, I just I joined a little late, but I, I just heard a really good point that the best code is no code. And if you plan your work appropriately, then you're making sure that you're writing the least code possible. And ideally you want to write as little code as you can. You want to be really lazy, really efficient, just write code that needs to be written. Planning is a really big part of that. I'll add that communication is a big part of that as well. I have uh, an example from my previous company where um, we had a retainer for a consultant that was working with us. We'd been working together for one and a half years, so a good relationship. Uh, and at one point, we needed uh, people to be able to log in with OAuth2, this uh, authentication platform that you often see with like login with LinkedIn or login log with Facebook. And we needed that for our customers uh, to be able to connect their Instagram and Twitter accounts to our system. And so we gave the consultant the job of implement OAuth2 uh, into our system and our server. Um, and I think that was a final task. Three weeks go by and he's frustrated. He's wondering if he can open source the work he's doing because it's complex and nobody's done it before. So we start to wonder what's going on. We expected it to take time. This was when Node was not even version, version one, like test version. So... So it was uh, not that much help from the community. And, and he then, after like we went through the code, it looked fine because I didn't know off to. Uh, but then it turned out when he was uh, showing us what he'd done, he'd actually written a full implementation so that people could implement log in with Scrimba on their website um, rather than people being able to log in with external providers like Instagram and Facebook. So he did sort of the job, but it was the opposite way of what we needed. And that was four weeks probably of wasted consultant time. And yeah, it could have been solved simply by communicating more, uh, being very specific on the use case rather than generic on using OAuth 2. So it was some obvious communication errors with it. And he also, uh, he actually, we, we shared the cost of it because he also didn't ask the question he should be doing. Oh, what a story. That relates pretty directly to something that I shared in my comment earlier about if you can't articulate what it is that you need to build, or, or rather how you're going to build it, then either the feature is not ready to be built, or you are not ready to build the feature. And that comes down, like you said, to communication. You know, if, 
if you can sit down and have a meeting before kicking off the work and and break it down into steps and everyone agrees on the steps, then everyone has implicitly also agreed on like the scope of those steps. I guess one of the challenges we had here is neither us as the consult or like the consultant or us as the company hiring him didn't know the scope, right? So often you're doing things where you don't really know what needs to be done. It's an open research task as well, which was the case here. But taking the time as a project owner to really get into what other people are doing, whether it's the junior developers, where I think it's essential to get into what other people are doing with their code and, and how it fits with what you're doing is underestimated and a bad practice as well. Something that I've always found to be really useful when you have research work to be done is to time box it. Usually call it like a research spike. Normally, if you if you have some planned work and the scope is understood and, and you, know, you know roughly what needs to be done, that is work that you can put a time estimate on. But when there's a, a component that nobody on the team actually has done before or there are some unknowns, it's good to just wrap it in like a rough you know, time estimate, like a four hour time box or something. And the expected output of that four hours is for the person to come back and be able to say either, I now know how to do this or I don't. Not for them to come back and say, I have done this, but for them to come back and say, I, I now understand the like the depth and complexity of this because usually if they if they come back saying I still don't know how we're going to do this, it at least tells the whole team, okay, we need to come together and and talk about alternate solutions. And that way you don't end up having one person, you know, spending like three days bashing their head against the task, which is something that as developers we all love to do, uh, if if nobody constrains us. <laughs> well, maybe I could summarize that by just saying that you, you don't know what you don't know until you go down that path and maybe better to, to face that exploration up front than get deep into the project and realize you've gone down the wrong path I also like the way Gabe Dev summarized the, the beginning of this topic which was um, communicating is as if not more important than the actual code and you followed up in the chat Michael saying that most bad practices themes will be mostly about the human factor of writing code which is Kind of hard to believe, I think, if you're new to programming. Yeah, a lot of people usually ask, like, um, when I get a lot of experience, what would you, what would you tell yourself? Um, what would you tell past self and stuff? And literally, most people usually just say, practice soft skills better, learn books about communication. And it's really maybe 25, 30% is they say, yeah, read out more about technology and things. It does seem like the biggest problem is usually making sure that things are properly scoped, the project and the collaboration works, and that the only way to achieve that is communicating. Yeah, the human factor is a huge part of the job. Hard skills are important, but soft skills, kind of incorrectly named, in my opinion. Uh, what should they be called? Probably the other way around. Oh, okay. That sounds like a podcast or a, <laughs> a fireside chat episode <laughs> in and of itself. Um, but, but yeah, I think it makes sense then to focus on the, the softer side of things. Um, I see there's a point here that I, I think you're kind of taking ownership of, Michael, which is about harshly written GitHub issues. Um, what, what are some bad practices you see around people documenting problems or describing them in GitHub issues? And, and what's the right way to do it? Maybe you have some resources you can recommend. Yeah, that was um, one, one of the, like, uh, the pair wanted to bring this up. So um, sometimes people do mention they kind of write 
in a GitHub issue because like they found, someone found a bug or something and then they just write up um, really harsh worded kind of like something is crap, it doesn't work, fix it. I know that normally people have to get themselves detached from, from code that they write and that's definitely something everyone practices or try aims to practice but you kind of still sometimes feel a little bit hurt because you're like oh no i've written that and it kind of puts you in really odd headspace that you just can't really control uh so some of the materials i have managed to collect over a certain period of time is uh by michael lynch and uh in 2017 he wrote this really brilliant essay about how to conduct reviews and in 2020 he also wrote a uh, brilliant essay about how to create a PR that would be an absolute pleasure to review. So uh, I'm just sharing them uh, to share them in Discord. And also, while uh, we'll proceed further talking, I'll kind of leave a couple of comments about it. This this has really close to home for me. You know, I think at Scrimber, like, we're very friendly in the way we communicate. Like, there's no such thing as a dumb question. You know, most questions are actually really good questions because if people are asking questions about the platform or our processes it means we haven't explained it well already like i think this is a very positive attitude we embody um but if you look at github issues sometimes and people ask a question and they get like really harsh one line sometimes one sentence results and then boom issue closed Uh, and to be honest like i could sympathize a little bit because i think maintaining an open source project when you're not being paid or endorsed and so on and a lot of people are just like demanding things or requesting things i bet it does harden you a little bit but Still, I think we should make an effort as people. I think that's good to acknowledge because then if you see it, you kind of can understand why it's happening a little bit. That's that's important. But as someone participating in GitHub issues, I think all the things you just described, Michael, are spot on. Um, the, the re- I'll be reading those resources for sure. Yeah, I think it kind of boils down to really remembering that there is a human on the other side of that screen. Whichever API or platform you use to interact with that person, you know, if it's a Reddit comment or Facebook post, tweet and Discord message and a GitHub issue. Yeah. So I I wasn't I had to drop off the, the kind of planning session to figure out the recording real quick. Um, and we basically ordered them. I don't mind sharing this with the group, by the way, because I'm kind of curious to know, know the reasoning here. But like. The, some of the some of the ordering has like the same number. I think they just probably alphabetically. It was a like grouping. There, there is similar topics. That's why I grouped them together. Oh, grouping. That makes okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah that makes a lot of sense. Um, so within the same group, I suppose. Um, Bob, what can you tell us? Well, we actually kind of covered this next one where I, I had written down not asking enough questions or maybe asking too many questions before doing your own research and and realized that in a concise way, it's just not communicating with the team well enough. I think there's also an element of like rushing in to do the code instead of doing any planning ahead of time um, that I was kind of trying to convey the feeling of. I was thinking specifically of a repository that I had worked on at my last place at vSchool. After I left, um, I've still done a little bit of consulting for them when they have questions. One of the developers who's granted a, a pretty brand new developer um, so, it's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be very lenient, but uh, he's sort of a cowboy coder. He'll he'll go in, see that he's, you know, either not able to make something work that I wrote uh, or he didn't understand it. And so he just did it his own way, which, frankly, was a really terrible way. And uh, just because of his lack of experience, um, instead of asking questions about like, well, how do I get this to work? Why isn't this running on my machine? He would just comment out entire files of code. Um, and so it kind of led me to thinking like, well, you, you should ask, you should be asking these questions 
Um, or if you find yourself feeling like you're bugging people around you, then make sure that you are first doing your own research. Um, so it's, again, just a, a juggle, like a, a balancing act. Yeah, because I wonder what the right attitude to embody there is. Like, I think when you're new you can, and you have help available, you think about it like a knowledge well. You don't want to drain it too soon, right? Because um, then you can't go back to it. Yeah, and I think... Um, I, I think the key is like learning how to fish as opposed to having someone just give you fish, right? Um, if you aren't, yeah, you, if you're using the knowledge well as your main source of, of knowledge, then you're, you're just doing it wrong. Like you have to, you have to learn how to research for yourself and then use your, your knowledge. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm extremely happy to help people, especially junior developers who have clearly done their own research um, because it it shows me that I'm not going to be feeding them something and they'll just like require my help again um, without doing any work on their own. So I'm, I'm always super happy to help people who have very clearly done their own research. And, and uh, when I was working at a boot camp, uh, as soon as I could tell that someone wasn't or hadn't either done the research or described the problem well enough, I would say um, I'm happy to answer this question. I, I want you to to write it out more thoroughly. Tell me what you've done to try and solve it already, so that I don't just suggest a bunch of things you've already tried. Sometimes they had tried stuff. Sometimes they hadn't really thought through the problem at all. And as soon as something went wrong, they you know raised their hand. Honestly, I reckon there's room in the Scrum curriculum for a whole, at least a Scrum, maybe even a module on how how to ask questions and how to get help. Because well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If someone just comes to you asking with a very vague question or basically expecting you to figure it out and write the code, you're going to struggle to find help. But it's like that. Um, I'm not sure what it is. It's more of a fable or something, I guess. But if you are broken down by the side of the road and you're just sitting there waiting, people drive past. If you start to actually like change your own wheel and demonstrate some effort, people are going to be like, oh, yeah, let me come and help. But yeah, like it does come up a lot, right? Like Asking a good question is a skill. And often when you try and phrase it in a way that someone can reasonably help you. You might even crack the problem by yourself before asking the question. I can't count the number of times I've started typing out a Stack Overflow question. But all the kind of toxic things about Stack Overflow, like their culture, not, not toxic, sorry, but the culture can be very harsh towards new askers and answerers. They've been criticized for that a lot. The only thing I would say is that like, it, when I ask a question that I'm really forced to prove I've done all the research and I've tried, because I know I'm going to get downvoted into oblivion if I don't, and maybe that's not the right way to do it. But the but the point is, as I would do that research to ask the question, I would often be like, oh, don't even need to post that. I think also, if you are forced to dip into that well of knowledge, as Bob calls it, and like, you know, put up your hand, pull over a, a senior coworker, or what have you, chances are that there are probably people coming up behind you who are also going to run into whatever problem you're running into. So if you get like an hour of someone else's time to go through, let's say, like some configuration steps, because configuration is the worst part of programming. Take notes, first of all, for your own future self, when you inevitably forget everything that they told you. And then also consider like publishing those notes. If your team has an internal tool like Confluence or like some sort of a wiki, volunteer to make that page and then put it on the desk of the, the person whose help you got. Say, hey, thanks. I really appreciated your time helping me to do this configuration stuff. It was really boring. Um, I would have been, you know, in deep trouble without your help. Can you look at this page? 
I wrote up everything that we went through. Can you just double check that I got every, all the details correct? And then in the future, that becomes a resource that, you know, new members of the team can refer to. Are you kind of suggesting that when you demonstrate that behavior, that you basically document it? Um, it's almost worthwhile for the senior person to help you because they know that they help you once and then you're going to help everyone so they don't have to keep going back to the senior or whoever person to, to get that answer because it's documented now. Exactly. Like every team has knowledge, you know, accrued within it. And getting that knowledge spread around can be really difficult, especially when the people who have all the knowledge typically become the busier people on a team. So if you can just sort of like chisel it out of their hands and, and put it somewhere that it's accessible to everyone, um, you really elevate the whole team. Yeah, that's definitely that is such a good point. In my current workplace, I actually even has it written as uh, their kind of work in practice. We, we call it drop in the ladder. So if you struggle with something and someone else helps you out with it, then you kind of climb the wall and now you, it's your duty to drop the ladder to the next person. So write some documentation or create some learning materials for other people to learn from it. I like that a lot. Um, let's, let's move on to another bad project. And then I think we'll have a few about gits and, and sort of bad habits around gits in particular. What should we talk about next, Michael? I've written uh, skipping the docs or not reading them. You know, we mentioned about uh, talk, you talk to a senior person and you write some documentation to make sure that you help out whoever comes next after you. Well, it would be really, really painful if whoever comes after you asks the question instead of reading the docs uh, because you've written them exactly for it. Yeah, before you ask a question, we kind of already mentioned it. Before you ask a question, make sure that, you know, do your homework, uh, do your research. And then if you really stuck, then go and reach out for help. But obviously one of the points is do your homework and you do that by reading docs. There is a popular acronym that you might hear, RTFM. Uh, read the uh, manual, I guess. I've beeped there. The yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so yeah, it's kind of a motto that um, I, I still have it on a sticky note on my screen. It literally says RTFM because uh, I still struggle with it. Um, but here's a here's a follow up question. And honestly, when I read this, I thought you, I thought whoever wrote it, presumably you, meant like if you are learning a new uh, library, like imagine you want to use Moment JS. Maybe that's an outdated example. Um, but say you want to use a date and time library in JavaScript um, before going head head first into the code, spend some time reading the docs. Is that applicable here? Or am I clutching in straws? Uh, yeah, it kind of is applicable that. <laughs> You know, some sometimes you're stuck on something. You kind of ask the question. Uh, oftentimes, people just reach out for help without trying to research, and that's not necessarily a well. It's okay to ask questions, but asking too many questions leads to kind of other people not being able to focus a little bit, uh, and that's why quite often things are already written down, so you can just Google your stuff or for local configuration or local practices for your code base. Uh, people oftentimes try to document these. Uh, so, you know, if you read the steps, for example, how to deploy your application and so on, then people kind of try to document most like 95% of regular flow. Uh, and then there are like these 5% edge cases that maybe people haven't thought of or something else. And they would definitely be useful to document, you know, you drop the ladder for everyone else. I think we should move on to some more bad programming practices in just a second. And we'll talk, I think, about some Git and Git's bad practices, which are 
I'm quite interested about, and it could also be a good chance to mention your stream tomorrow, Michael, almost the part two of the very popular uh, weekly live stream you did with Leanne on Git and now on GitHub. Before I move on, I just want to kind of open the floor and see if anybody has any questions about any of the bad practices we've spoken about. Someone in the chat made mention about how sometimes the documentation can be hard to read. I remember when I was first starting and, and when I've helped many students as they're first starting, people, they either see answers on Stack Overflow that say you need to read the, the F and manual or whatever, the docs. And it's disheartening because they oftentimes have tried to read the documentation. Like we're kind of having the discussion now in the chat. Sometimes the documentation is really bad. In fact, I would say I've come across confusing or difficult documentation much more often than I've come across really beautiful, well-documented documentation. And I think it a lot of times has to do with the assumptions that the person writing the documentation has made. Um, sometimes they've spent so much of their time building the library that they forget what is known and what isn't known by the people using the library. And if you're a beginner and you just don't understand some of the basic terminology, it's confusing almost no matter how well you write the, the documentation. And so I think just having patience with people who, who have tried to read the documentation and uh, still don't understand it, because in my experience, more often than not, the documentation is not usually written very well, at least not for someone who's relatively junior. Yeah, I think you, you're spot on. Like The React documentation is criticized quite a bit for like inconsistent examples and and sometimes dated ones i I also think that documentation tends to be an afterthought for a lot of open source projects and so there is that period of having to go back and remember things nuances they take for granted being being lost along the way what i would say is if you come across any documentation that is particularly difficult probably you're not alone and what you've done is you've discovered a problem that other people share and you can likely solve i was learning a uh, database technology called sqlize it's an orm for node.js and it basically makes it easier to work with databases and i thought the documentation was pants like i just couldn't understand it i had to do a lot of trial and error but once i figured it out i then made videos teaching what i'd learned and, and they were really well received i think they've got a few hundred thousand views on youtube these days and people seem to really appreciate them. And by the way, I did this many years ago when I was looking for my first junior dev job. And even though those specific videos didn't come up, I'd be lying if I said they did. I think that the whole, you know, having a YouTube channel in general and the quality of the videos on that helped a little bit. So if you come across those docs, then you're probably not the only person struggling. And another opportunity is that most documentation is hosted on GitHub nowadays. And that's great because you can actually improve the documentation and submit a pull request. And in doing so, you're building your GitHub activity graph, earning some good faith within that community so that if you one day feel like you want to make your first code contribution to a project, probably the maintainers will have even more patience and support for you because you've contributed to the project. But I'd love to hear about some like Git bad practices. Maybe you can talk about those, Bob. Yeah, when I was thinking of these, um, it was mostly because Git is such a, I don't know, it's such a complicated tool to learn um, and I, I was kind of telling the group when I'm working with students, I'll oftentimes say, um, don't be afraid to break your code. Just, just mess with it, type stuff in, you know, whether you know it's going to work or not. And the worst that could happen is your program crashes and it's not like your computer's broken. You just, you know, command Z and, and undo what you did. 
However, Git is not the same. Don't just don't just mess around with Git. It's it's better to to ask questions and to get help with Git before you just decide to kind of cowboy it. Just try to do it on your own without any resources or help. Because well, if you make a mistake in Git, usually you can undo it, but it takes some pretty specialized knowledge to do so, and sometimes some specialized tools to do so. It's not just like you can command Z the stuff you're doing in Git. Um, so I wrote down a few uh, things with Git where, for one, um, not using branches correctly, uh, or, I mean, with beginners, usually not using branches at all, um, is kind of a, a bad practice. And, and when you get into the workplace, it's a very bad practice. I mean, they'll, they'll usually protect, um, like, the, the main branch from you, um, for most people, except for, like, maybe one entry point that's allowed to mess with it. So creating, creating branches... Um, is a really good practice because it gets you ready for for your job. Um, When you're done with branches, not cleaning them up. I've gone to so many repositories where I I list all the branches and there's dozens and dozens of branches. And I happen to know that they're not working on all those branches. Um, And then uh, when you are doing stuff with branches, uh, merging those branches locally, um, even if it's just your own little project and you, you know, no one else is really looking at it. It's just such a good practice to, um, to push those those branches up to GitHub and going through the pull request system, even if you're the one reviewing your own code, um, merging it on GitHub and pulling it back down. If, if you're not familiar with Git, which I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people listening are not familiar with Git, this may not make a ton of sense. But um, just know that Git, Git isn't really meant to, or isn't a good candidate for something you should just try to break on your own. Just be, just be gentle, I guess, when you're using Git. I'm just curious to see in the chat, like who, who knows what a branch is, who doesn't. Isn't it crazy? Like until you learn these things, it must sound like gobbledygook. Just like a branch. I thought that's something trees have. Oh yeah, there is. Um, I think it was Subversion where the main branch is actually called Trunk. Oh, yeah, that's which yeah. is why it's branches in Git. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And the idea of pull request is specific GitHub, not Git. And one thing I like about GitLab is that they call it a merge request, which implies you're going to merge the changes. Merge request makes so much more sense. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I I think there's some history to that term because I think there was, you know, before the advent of these web-based tools like GitHub and GitLab, the intent was that you request another developer to literally pull your code so that they can review it on their computer. Uh, yeah. But now, now that you can just pop onto like GitHub or whatever and read someone's code there, I mean, oh. I almost never pull my coworkers' branches. There's, there's just rarely a need unless they're like, "Hey, I've got a bug. I can't figure out. Can you pull it and have a look?" Yeah, what you can't do it. You can't do it when you when you're working on an open source library and you have to pull someone else's fork of that to replicate the issue that they have on the branch. What was um, Microsoft's like? I know Microsoft don't get it now. But what was their version control system called before it got shut down? Code Plex, something like that. Never even heard of it. Anyway, I wonder if, as you're learning to code, I'm pretty sure, yeah, it was called Code Plex, yeah. It's crazy. They had a, this is why I've just started to realize when you program for long enough, there are things that new programmers will never ever like know about. And it's probably, yeah, not worth bringing up, to be honest. Like, I don't think it's gonna, it's gonna matter. But I just, I just thought I'd bring it up because. Thinking earlier, how like no one these days will ever use a go-to statement. I think that used to be more prevalent with languages, BBA and stuff. Anyway, yeah, there's some Git bad practices. Do we do we want to talk a little bit about like some GitHub bad practices? 
because I know that you have a sort of opinion on taking time to review pull requests properly, Michael. Yeah, so I think someone also mentioned, oh yeah, in the chat, two large PRs and also when someone takes too long to review them. Yeah, definitely. It's a pain when someone takes huge amount, like weeks to review a PR because you kind of always worried about, oh, well, I'll have to jump off this story and try to fix whatever nodes they say. And the flip side of that, again, kind of there is a theme to that, you know, whatever I say, there is always the opposite that's also bad. Uh, but the opposite of taking too long is taking too little time to review. And uh, there are developers who just write uh, LGTM, which is either stands for looks good to me or legitimate. And I basically just looked at your PR, wrote LGTM, submitted it, and then you, know, you receive no feedback. You're still not quite sure whether what you've done is right or not. Uh, so yeah, the flip side of taking too long to review PRs is not reviewing them at all. Yeah, if no one reviews your PR, then there is a missed opportunity to learn from each other. And I do feel like PRs are a brilliant tool to actually learn from the developers and teach other developers. You also wrote about not testing changes locally and pushing code changes and breaking the build. Yeah, that's kind of remembering past problem that I used to have in my previous work. Uh, where we had one developer who was uh, he would just write code changes and not test them at all on his local machine and he would just push the code change straight out and it would break the build because well in my previous place we also were of proponents of very old school technique of pushing straight to master uh i think bob mentioned, once. yeah bob mentioned that you shouldn't do that uh anyway if you push it it breaks the build it kind of you know it's like sticking sticks into other developers wheels and obviously other people pull that code and all of a sudden their machines break and you know basically run the test changes before you commit it that's that's my bad practice so even if you somehow end up working somewhere that everyone just pushes straight to master and if you do you should really strongly reconsider working there um you can set up uh what are known as commit hooks uh so you can you can set up so that locally in your local environment uh either before you commit or before you push, or there's all of these different like moments in time where you can trigger arbitrary commands. And so if you have, let's say, a command to run your, your compilation or a command to run your unit test suite or both, you can actually set your computer up to run those things as you attempt to create a commit. And if the commands fail, then the commit fails. It's kind of a cool little like first step towards doing continuous integration. It's like individual continuous integration. And then hopefully also once you push the commit, it, you also run continuous integration on you know GitHub or whatever. Yeah, very good tip. That's actually what we ended up doing in eventually. Uh, we made that person pull the Git hooks and, and that, that kind of stopped the problem. That the Git hook kept reminding them to do it. So, Robert, you also mentioned another bad practice keen to close out on, because I think it's really super applicable to everybody. I'll just quickly throw in a bad practice I wanted to bring up, which is being overly cautious about writing bad code or in a workplace accruing technical debt. I think there's often a temptation to get code perfect. To be honest, that kind of applied to me at some point, but actually, as it related to my personal projects, it just meant that I never shipped anything. <laughs> like. But yeah, to, to close this out, basically, Robert, you mentioned another bad programming practice is 
uh, not planning your breaks. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So it was mentioned earlier that a lot of these these bad practices that we're talking about are like human factors rather than actual literal coding things. And I, I think that most of the real bad practices on development teams are human factors things. If you don't take breaks, your mind will become dull. You'll lose focus. I was joking with someone on Twitter a couple of days ago that like, I'll have Twitter open on a tab. I'll close the tab. I'll open a new tab and I'll start typing TW and then hit enter to autocomplete to Twitter. It's like, wait a minute, I was just on this site. Why am I going right back to this site? There are a million distractions in the world. And if you let them, they will just rain your day. So there are a lot of ways to deal with this. Uh, you'll hear people sometimes talk about something called the Pomodoro method. Basically, the, the TLDR version of it is that you, you set a timer for like 20 minutes, work dedicated for 20 minutes as focused as you can. When the timer goes off, you get like a five minute break and you just do this on repeat throughout the day. Uh, if, you, if you define your breaks, then those breaks will happen. There's a quote that if you don't choose the day to rest, then your body will choose it for you. And this is basically like the, the mental equivalent of that. If you don't choose a time to give your brain a rest and, and switch gears and, and come up from the task you're doing and, and remember that there's an outside world and text messages to reply to and bills to pay and stuff like that, they will just seep in and, and take over your brain when you're meant to be doing other things. And this especially applies if you are working with someone, if you're pairing with someone, then it's not just your own time that you are being disrespectful of if, you, um, if you're allowing yourself to become distracted. It's also the other person's time too. Like if you're literally sat with someone at a computer and you know they're working away on the thing that the two of you are meant to be working on and you've got your phone out and you're just like scrolling... Just don't do that. That's no, Nobody wins when you do that. No way. Well, thank you, Robert. And thank you, everybody else, for joining us up on stage. That's all we have time for today. Hopefully you enjoyed the fireside chat. And we'll see you next week. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Thanks, everyone. everyone. See you later.